0: And this is Datacast. Join me for all conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to uh, a new episode of Datacast. And today I'm uh, on the phone with Ben Fuller. Ben Fowler has been in the field of data science for over five years in his current role at Southeast Toyota Finance. He leads the end-to-end model development process to solve the problems of interest. He also holds a Master of Science in data science from the Southern Methodist University, graduating in 2017. Following graduation, he has been a guest speaker to the SMU program multiple times. Additionally, Ben has spoken at the Pi Data Miami 2019. Pi Data LA 2019 conferences, and and has spoken multiple times at the West Palm Beach Data Science Meetup. So Ben, glad to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, James. Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So let's start our, our interview talking a bit about your career before getting into data science. So um, I saw that you studied marketing in college, and then you worked for more than 10 years in, in the sports domain, so more specifically at, at the GO Foundation and the PGA America. So, uh could you mind quickly discussing this uh, career phase of yours?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, I thought when I was going into college that I wanted to be a golf professional uh, at a golf course, like a teaching professional. Uh, so, I got a marketing degree with a concentration in professional golf management from New Mexico State University for my undergraduate degree. Entered the golf industry. And shortly after entering the golf industry, I kind of got a sense this probably wasn't for me. Um, Spent two years working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car, which actually led me to the National Golf Foundation because they were selling a customer satisfaction survey system to golf facilities based on a customer service uh, metric that Enterprise used. Uh, And so that was actually when I went to the National Golf Foundation, they're a research organization for golf businesses, where I first met uh, Dr. Joe Beditz, who's the CEO of the National Golf Foundation, and started to get an understanding of how statistics worked. And and as I started spending time with statistics, I I started to really enjoy it. Um, And I stayed uh, at PG of America until uh, December 2010, where I, I then transitioned uh, or stay at the National Golf Foundation until 2010, and then transitioned to the PGA of America, uh, leading the tactical execution of an initiative called Know Your Customer uh, for a strategic plan that PGA of America had put forth to the golf industry called Golf 2.0. Uh, and I did that for um, a period of five and a half years. And, uh, over that time, I started to uh, really... Gravitate towards learning and developing skills in the data science realm, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of got my career kickstarted in data science.
1: I
0: see. So um, I'm just curious. You know, um, how did you first attracted to um, data science and machine learning? I guess like how how did you hear about it? You know.
2: Yeah, I would say around 2014, uh, I was actually reading. I actually remember reading a book about metrics and. Uh, in the book, they even talked a little bit about data science. I kind of got my mind thinking about it, and I'm like that's that's interesting—writing code and using the power of computers to uh, essentially create predictive algorithms. And so that was something that was was of interest to me. And just in my work, I was looking for a more rigorous approach to how business decisions were made. Uh, and I think this quest for rigor really transitioned me from somebody who did analysis of lagging data such as like analyzing spreadsheets uh, to becoming adept at predictive analytics through machine learning modeling.
0: Mm, I see. And so uh, what was your motivation uh, for to pursuing like a master degree in data science?
2: Sure. I felt it was really important for me to get a, a master degree to really get the foundational elements needed for data science. Uh, and one of the things that really attracted me to the program at Southern Methodist University was there a curriculum drew from multiple colleges. It drew from the Dedman College of Humanities and Sciences, uh, the Lyle School of Engineering, and the Meadow School School of Arts. Uh, And having a a curriculum that was very based in statistics was also very important to me, Uh, and that was something that SMU offered as well. Um, Looking back, it probably was the best professional decision I ever made, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I know I wouldn't be where I am today if
1: I hadn't graduated from SMU.
0: Yeah, that you have a, a very good um, uh, experience attending that program, and um, so so looking back, what do you think is like the most uh, useful classes that you took uh, for that degree?
2: Yeah, so the data mining class I thought was fantastic. It was definitely the best course I took in the whole program. Uh, my class was taught by Dr. Jake Drew, uh, who has a PhD in computer science from SMU and has fifteen years of experience. Uh, previously working for Bank of America and MBNA, Uh, His final 10 years there, he was vice president uh, doing card services revenue optimization. The course was so helpful for me because the nature of the labs that we encountered in the coursework uh, was absolutely applicable to future business problems that I encountered. Uh, The instructor was great and the coursework was completely relevant and combined those two elements made it definitely my best course. Uh, it was probably the hardest of the entire curriculum, but the time I spent was absolutely worthwhile.
0: I see. So you said data mining, right? Data mining, yes. Yes, I see. Just one quick note, like, do you have any recommendation in terms of um, resources for people who want to, I guess, learn a little bit more about uh, data mining?
1: Yeah. So I
2: would say that there's a lot of different types of libraries that uh I think are, are very helpful uh, in terms of uh, data mining. So, um, for me, I, I primarily, primarily work in uh, Python, and that uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about Python is the wide uh, libraries, such as um, being able to do feature engineering, mm-hmm. uh, feature selection techniques uh, that there's libraries from, which I can cover on a little bit that are really important in the modeling process, uh, which is central around data mining.
0: Right. And so um, after that degree, you uh, became a senior data scientist at CarePredict, which is an AI out-of-care platform that helps senior people live independently, economically, and longer. So can you share a brief overview about uh, the the company and what were some of the uh, projects that you were uh, um, involved with?
2: better care of senior care through a hardware and software system uh, that we sold to senior care companies. Uh, At CarePredict, we had a proprietary wearable device called the Tempo that collected data of a senior citizen's activities of daily living and their real-time room location in the facility. Uh, This continuous stream of IoT data provided us the ability to develop predictive models, provide the facility an early indicator of potential risk factors that a senior sites provided care facilities new intelligence that allowed
1: them to provide better care for their
0: residents. But having that experience working at CarePredict, what do you think is the like, biggest challenge of adopting like machine learning and AI in healthcare?
1: Well,
2: I think data security and privacy is definitely a significant challenge. Uh, not only is it an ethical imperative, there are also legal factors as well. For example, it is legal to store the personal health information from residents of British Columbia and Nova Scotia and Canada on a server in the US, even if their data is encrypted.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: Additionally, I think in healthcare, the profit motive of companies can potentially be in conflict with the motive of helping people. If companies don't see a profit boost from helping people live healthier, their innovations with machine learning will be focused on building models that drive further profit in other ways, and not necessarily improving the health of people. So in this aspect, I still see healthcare embracing machine learning, but it's my hope that healthcare companies don't lose sight of their ethical responsibilities that they have of helping people live a healthier life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if healthcare companies operate with this imperative, we'll see innovations in machine learning not only in the sales and marketing side of their business, but also in the R and D and operation sides as well.
0: I see for sure. Yeah, um a lot of the recent debates, uh I mean I guess the topic of ethical AI has been really um Increasing interest in the in the past, you know, few months or years, and uh, obviously, like you know, the the domain of healthcare is, is definitely getting a lot of traction. Um, with respect to that regard, so I can totally uh, understand that that part of you. And so, after uh, you know, working at uh, predict you move on into uh, another data scientist role at JM Family Enterprise, which is one of the largest company in the automotive industry. So, uh, can you talk a bit about the company uh, business?
2: For sure. So JM Family Enterprises uh, is the parent company, uh, and we currently have four business lines. Our three primary business lines are Southeast Toyota Distributors, uh, where we're the distributor for Toyota in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Southeast Toyota Finance, where we are the captain lending company for uh, our dealers in that five state territory, and JMA. JMA provides uh, products such as extended warranties, uh, prepaid maintenance plans, gap insurance to uh, dealers not only in the five state territory of uh, Southeast Toyota, but actually for all all Toyota dealers, all dealers, excuse me, all dealers nationwide. Uh, So a little bit about JM family. Jam Family is ranked by Fortune Magazine as the 17th best company to work for in the United States. Uh, this is the 21st consecutive year that Jam Family has been ranked as one of Fortune 100's best companies to work for. So this is a, a great honor uh, and something that I see every single day when I come to uh, work. With. Our associates are truly exceptional. Um, additionally, Jam Family is uh, a large company, uh, ranking 21st in Forbes' list America's largest private companies. Uh, JM Family is the world's largest independent distributor of Toyota, selling over 20% of all Toyotas in the USA.
0: I see. Yeah. So that's a, a very nice environment to work in just to see sort of the the big impact of, of your work, right?
1: Um, Absolutely.
0: So uh, my understanding is that at uh, JM Family, you led the initiative of doing uh, end-to-end model development to solve uh, a variety of uh, a business problem. So can, at the higher, higher level picture, can you kind of like going over, uh, you know, that whole, that kind of model, model process, you know, what does uh, what it entails?
2: Definitely. So for me, when I say the end-to-end modeling process it uh, really constitutes these following steps. Uh, first, the uh, understanding and defining the problem of interest uh, for the business. Uh, and then after having that problem defined analyze, conducting exploratory data analysis on that data set, uh, determining what data is missing and developing an imputation strategy, uh, and then a plan for how are you going to split your data into a training, validation, test, and how to sample test set, uh, identifying best ways that you can conduct feature engineering and feature selection on that data. Uh, And then even looking at potentially doing some anomaly detection outlier handling, even sometimes anomaly detection uh, can be beneficial added feature in the feature engineering process as well. Uh, And then doing model evaluation and model interpretability, uh, along with a plan for how will you deploy that model in a production environment. And then finally, uh, having a, a process for reproducing that model uh, with uh, rigorous model documentation and a model management
1: plan.
0: And so, um, you know, kind of based on your experience, which component of that whole uh, entire life cycle of a, of a modeling project could be, uh, you know, the most difficult to tackle?
1: Well, I would say for me, the feature
2: engineering and feature selection work is a large part of the challenge in the process. Mm-hmm. This type of work I've done very adept at, but it's taken several years of experience to get to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, there have been recent advancements in experiment logging, which is necessary for model reproducibility and model management. Uh, I know of uh, the mlflow and verta.ai are two libraries that have made recent strides in this area. Uh, these advancements have allowed data scientists to handle all their logging and model artifacts, such as plots and CSV files, mm-hmm. uh, model metrics, and hyperparameters through code, rather than manually tracking them in a spreadsheet. And I can say for me personally, that capability has allowed me to work significantly faster, uh, particularly when you're in, involved comparing maybe even hundreds of models uh, during an experiment uh, where. In the past, I had to rely on Excel to do that work, which was a major
1: pain point.
0: Yeah, I see. Um, back to your second part, you know, I I can see a lot of uh, you know startup and new companies, you know, kind of spanning out, you know, these sort of ML ops platform that tackle like a specific component of that modeling process. And, and yeah, like you mentioned, MLflow from Databricks, which is pretty nice um, platform to to do all that process so from um, hyperparameter tuning to you know, reproducibility. So was there any other sort of, um, you know, products or platforms that you also pay attention to?
1: You know, actually one
2: product I was going to touch on a little bit later, but now that we're at this point, I think think I'll bring up two, that I just learned about at the PyData Los Angeles conference Mm was Streamlit. Uh, And Streamlit is an open source um, Python package Uh, that they developed, actually, they worked in shadow operations for about a year and been working with Uber extensively uh, to develop beautiful uh, user interfaces developed in Python code Mm -hmm. uh, in very minimal amount of code. Uh, In 20 to 30 lines, you can have fantastic user interfaces. And where, for me, Streamlit can be of great value is you have a model that is, uh, you know, is very predictive. know the reasons why that model is producing the predictions it makes and you then need to give that model to a non-technical user Mm -hmm. uh who needs to engage with that model to communicate what the decision is or what the prediction is and understand why the model made the prediction it did and so i was very impressed with Streamlit. i thought it was definitely um a great way to develop a user interface for the production serving of models, uh, which for me I thought was uh, a great uh, add to the community.
1: Mm,
0: yeah, definitely. That I'd be. Yeah, that's that's great that you bring up that uh, that product. I um, I think I read like their lunch blog post on Medium like a while back and was very fascinated by you know sort of the um, the, the minimalist design and how you go straight from you know, modeling to, you know, have that UI interface to, to present it to different people. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that and I definitely put that onto the show notes so people can have a chance to kind of like review the product and maybe play around with them. Yeah, and so kind of going back to your career, about four months ago, you uh, became the, uh, a tech lead doing machine learning at uh, East Toyota Finance. And so my, based on my research, you know, um, the organization is a leading provider of retail financing and leasing of new Toyota vehicles. Um, and so can you share a couple of projects um, you know that you've been involved with uh, so far at, at uh, SDF?
1: Yeah, so uh, at Southeast Toyota
2: Finance, my role is to really think about the business opportunities that we're trying to optimize for. Uh, and when I do that work, I, I first kind of think about our data and the data that we're, uh, collecting um, in the process of running business operations. Uh, and I'll consider what, the data that we have, which can help us build an opt model, optimal model uh, for the problem of interest. Uh, but then I also think really strategically about the data that we don't have. And I think that's something that uh, is an easy step to kind of skip is that you? it's easy to kind of get fixated on what data we have and what are the problems that we're trying to solve for. Well, that's good, but what's probably even better is also then contemplate what other data is potentially available that you could acquire uh, that you don't have that would be relevant to your problem of interest and then integrating that into your project as well.
0: Collecting relevant data is definitely a huge challenge for any um, you know, uh, practical uh, machine learning projects, and so I'm glad that you kind of like, emphasize on that voice um, throughout your experience. And so uh, what do you think is the most challenging aspect of your role, you know, leading a team thus far?
1: I've been in
2: in, as in my, the field of data science. I've been in different types of roles. So when I was a senior data scientist, uh, I did oversee another data scientist on my team. Um, but now at Southeast Toyota Finance, I'm an individual contributor. Uh, and so I've kind of seen both aspects of that in I think what I really enjoy is coaching and identifying ideas and libraries that help us work better. Better, mm-hmm. uh, So I, I consider myself more of a coach to my peers. I don't aspire to be a manager uh, who's uninvolved in project work. Uh, doing data science is my passion, and, and I don't want to be in a role where I lose the aspect of writing code to solve business problems. Uh, I really enjoy helping my fellow associates, but I still want to be actively involved in projects. Uh, the project's work just what really keeps my juices flowing, and mm-hmm. I think uh, that's something that, for me personally, and that's I think a, a personal decision that everybody has to figure out for themselves. I I like the the, the project work in, in uh, writing
0: code. I'm glad that you, you you brought on that point. You know, people can can have a chance to you know stick with IC work or I like become manager, and obviously obviously there's pros and cons of doing both. You know, I guess from your experience, kind of like interacting or, or being one, you know, for, for someone who want to doing IC work and then want to move on to to leading teams, what would be like the key skill set that they should develop in order to make that transition?
2: Sure. So I would say first is be sure that's what you want to do. Find out what uh, being uh, a team lead means. For you on a day-to-day basis in terms of your, your workflow each day. Uh, so if you're, uh, if you're leading a team, uh, will you be less involved in writing code for projects? And if that's the case, is that what you really want to do? Um, if not, I'd encourage uh, someone to really try to kind of find out if there's a career path for advancement as an individual contributor. Uh, There are companies that are committed to allowing individual contributors to career path to grow and evolve into more advanced roles, uh, while still being actively engaged in projects. I'm fortunate that JM Family Enterprises and Southeast Florida Finance is one of those companies that is committed to that, and so uh, as an individual contributor, I still have the opportunity to
1: uh,
2: grow in my my career uh, in that context, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also recognize that that's not the case for people at all companies, and I think that's something uh, I hope more companies commit to is providing career growth and paths for ind- individual contributors who don't want to be in to go into management to be able to grow in their respective roles.
0: Great. Yeah, thanks for sharing that opinion. Um, and uh, you also a very frequent speaker and attendee at uh, various data science conferences. So uh, what were some of your favorite conferences that you have been to?
2: Sure, so I really enjoyed the Pi Data conferences I've been to. So I, as you mentioned, I was at Pi Data uh, Miami and spoke there, and then also just spoke at Pi Data Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Pi Data conferences are uh, really terrific since they're organized by NumFocus. it's not necessarily their motivation to uh, make a large profit on these conferences. The uh, conference uh, attendee fees are very nominal and they are quite modest relative to other conferences. That's nice, um, particularly if you're just starting out in the field or if you're a student. I think it's something that is uh, a great option, and the talks are very relevant to uh, the work in, in the field. Uh, they're very specific and focused. Uh, the tutorials get into code, so it's not talks that are very high level, shall we say, where you don't really have actionable items you can take back to you, take back with your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so those are things I really liked about, uh, data, uh, H2O world conferences that I've been to were also very good.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I like the H2O.ai, uh, open source, uh, library. I use it very extensively and it's been very helpful for me. Uh, I attended data science salon Miami this, uh, and that was i thought a very good conference as as was the rework and finance conference which i went to this year Mm -hmm. Uh, and i was just selected to speak at the o'reilly strata data and ai conference in march Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, i I think that's a great event as well it's a much larger conference but um, there's a a lot of uh, very talented people in the field uh, who come to that event so i think that's a great conference as well
0: it's really cool yeah i uh I uh, definitely can, you know, going to share some of those information about the conferences so people can have a chance to, to, to review and, you know, maybe sign up for one. Um, yeah, just, just quickly go over some of those. Like, you know, I know Rework AI has been like one of the best. It's kind of, um, they have a lot of events and summit on their website and all over like, you know, the US and, and even in London as well. So uh, And they also have a very good like kind of like, you know, YouTube channel and, and podcast so that kind of educate people about some of the work that they do. Um, and H2O, yeah, like, you know, I, I know that, you know, their product is is really uh, well-known in the industry, especially for, um, I think it was model explainability, right? Like, they have a pretty um, extensive resource and tutorial on those. And uh, I think I've been to, like, one of the meetups for H2O a while back, and it was really, um, you know, inspiring to kind of, like, see the, the kind of evangelism that they do for their platform to educate people so those are just want to you know say that those are really good um, suggestion that, that you provided. Uh, so I was doing a little bit research on kind of like your past uh, talks and um, I saw that at the Palm Beach Data Science Meetup uh, last year and the PI Data Miami earlier this year you gave uh, talks that look at some of the best practice uh, the best techniques and libraries to do efficient feature engineering and feature selection uh, and we kind of talk a little, a little bit about that earlier in our conversation. But um, can you go a bit about the detail on some of these uh, best best practice for the listeners?
2: For sure. So I think when starting off talking about uh, any of these uh, data analytics libraries or um, feature engineering libraries, the first one to start with is Pandas. Uh, and it's a great starting point for feature engineering using the aggregation, shifting the data Correlation and bidding methods that are built in pandas. Um, for me, in terms of feature engineering, weight of evidence transformations are commonly used in the finance field, where weight of evidence uh, uses a bidding scheme to identify the ratio of the goods versus bad customers and apply information from the target variable uh, for this ratio in each bin. Mm-hmm. Um, target label encoding also helpful feature engineering techniques for categorical data. Uh, I also use the little known XGB4 library, which is the R port of the XGB5 library, uh, which provides insights in the top relevant two-way and three-way interactions of features. Uh, this is, interactions is quite commonly known as a, a good feature engineering technique,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, but one of the challenges that data scientists could encounter if you have a data set, let's say even with as few as, say, 100 columns, uh, it's becomes computationally prohibitive to brute force every permutation of every three-way interaction of hundred features. Uh, so what XGB for actually does is it uh, outputs an Excel spreadsheet uh, with a tab showing the most relevant two-way and three-way interactions uh, in the next GBoost model. And then you can essentially then parse those uh, columns back into uh, your Python code and then code only those two-way and three-way interactions identified in next b uh, so that your code executes much faster or will execute where previously just wouldn't at all because of the time to compute. Um, another library that I've found interesting recently is speakX, which mm-hmm. measures on a univariate basis how a bin feature relates to the target variable and compares the trend of these bins with respect to the mean value of the target variable on each bin, mm-hmm. from the training to the validation set. Uh, which helps identify noisy features. Uh, so this can also provide benefit in the feature selection process. Um, and then another uh, kind of industry standard uh, library for um, working with time series data is the TS Fresh library.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: and TS Fresh is also very good at um, essentially doing feature engineering of uh, different statistical measures uh, in time series and
0: creating additional columns uh, as well great i'd be be sure to include some of those libraries and packages that you mentioned to to um to the show notes so people can can you know take a look at some of those was there any uh well you, you talk a little bit about um just just from your experience you know kind of like you know doing this feature engineering work in the in the industry what do you think you know i guess like students or you know people who want to kind of enter the field should learn about, you know, what are some of the fundamentals aspect of feature engineering, feature selection, that that they should definitely be aware of before, you know, engaging into any uh, machine learning project?
2: Well, I would say um, the first step is to really understand your data thoroughly. Uh, So I think that involves doing a lot of exploratory data analysis, um, understanding the nature of missingness of your data, uh, developing a plan for how are you going to impute that data, uh, identify what time period should you do data analysis on. So if your distribution of your data changes at some point in time, that is going to probably have implications on if you want to include uh, that data in your training data set or not. Um, so I think that's a factor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I think when you start talking about, you know, how do I want to best do feature engineering and feature selection, there uh, there's many industry standard tools such as the libraries that I mentioned that I th- think that can help, but my best recommendation is to try everything. Hmm. and log it into an experiment logging platform, such as I mentioned, the industry standard being now MLflow, uh, and see what your results are. Because uh, often what will work well on one data set might not work so well on another data set. And the best way to to really know what's going to be best is just to That's really it. build uh, efficient code that allows you to quickly test many different experiments uh, using loops and, and then log into flow and review results.
0: I see. So it's, it's a whole, like, sort of, you have to have an empirical approach to it, right? Like, you have to, you know, play around and try different things. Yeah, like and, and I think
1: a, a very
2: rigorous scientific approach is important, too, because when you start, when you're in the experimentation process, um, one common, um, fun, uh, common principle of statistics is that uh, you don't want to have confounding variables so you you need to be very uh, strategic in how you build your experiments so you're only modifying one variable at a time for each model run mm-hmm. uh, so that you can directly attribute what variable was changed uh, that resulted in the different uh, model metrics from that model run right so so you have to
1: be
0: essentially you say that you have to be really aware of that correlation between the interaction between different features and how do you isolate that That so you, so you can measure effectively the, the effect of any single features with respect to your, your model results?
2: Definitely. That's, that's very important.
0: Having that solid foundation of, of statistical knowledge is, is quite important. Um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, you can see that in practice, as you already mentioned. So at the Palm Beach Data Science meetup a couple of months ago, you gave a talk on uh, performing data science for fantasy football, specifically using machine learning to predict the future performance of players. Can you uh, share a bit about that, that experiment?
2: Definitely. So this experiment involved uh, collecting data from profootballreference.com. So Pro football Reference provides uh, data on players in the National Football League I pulled data from 2000 to 2018 on the positions of quarterback, running back, and wide receiver slash tight end. So the data collection part of this process was actually quite time consuming. Um, And then after I got all the data collected, actually the the modeling part wasn't nearly as bad. So uh, I used pandas to shift the labeled data column. Of points scored next year. So essentially I took these statistics from ProFootballReference.com. I play in a fantasy football league in ESPN.com and our league has defined rules of how many points are allocated for different uh, performance thresholds for each of these different positions. Mm -hmm. And so essentially I calculated what the fantasy points were scored based on that year's statistics. And then uh, with shift method in pandas i was then able to take what a given player's point scoring in next year would be and essentially that was my target variable so i wasn't so concerned of predicting how many points would a player score this year but being in the year of 2019 i want to take the statistics from 2018 Mm -hmm. and predict how many points they would score for 2019 which would then allow me to identify He
0: Uh, did you, uh, I guess, how's your results looking? I mean, did you uh, end up like, choosing those players for your for your fantasy?
2: Yeah, so I think this uh, this approach has been working pretty well. I, I won my fantasy football league uh, last year, which was a nice payout. It was about $1,000 payout, so that was, that was fun. Uh, and this year I'm in the playoffs, so the, the final results are to be determined. But our first playoff game is this Sunday, so... Uh, I guess stay tuned, but it seems to be working pretty well.
0: That's cool. Um, and And you said you did a bunch of different things to calculate feature importance. So what what are I guess some of the top uh, features in in your model that have the most influence for, for your target variable?
2: Well, it depended on the position. So I mentioned I built dedicated models for like running back, receiver, and quarterback. Uh-huh. So for instance, like on in the running back model, age was a feature, the age of the player. Uh, And that was a feature that came through in feature selection where that wasn't so important with uh, the quarterback or or wide receiver positions, um, which was interesting. Uh, Team was a feature that definitely came through. So I actually used the team as a feature. Um, And some teams historically over the past 18 years are more uh, better than others. And some teams are more inclined to run the football and others are more inclined to throw the football. Uh, so that was also uh, features that came through. And then the prior, I mentioned I used Panda Shift to actually take not only the current year, to shift next year's fantasy points to the given row of data. But then I also took the prior year's data mm. and had that as an additional features in my model. Uh, and prior year's fantasy points was also definitely like significant predictors in the models as well.
1: Mm,
0: I see. And you also mentioned that you, you use um H2O's uh, AutoML Auto ML platform to to handle some of the architecture search. So um just curious how yeah. is how is your experience working using that product?
1: Yeah, so you
2: know it, H2O I think uh, their Auto ML platform, they probably were one of the first that have been been uh, in the data science world with auto ml. Uh since then I've seen there's other there's many other providers that have kind of come out with that technology. I even saw this week that uh, AWS just released for, at their reInvent conference uh, for SageMaker and AutoML method for uh, their uh, SageMaker uh, new autopilot API. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting as well. So we're starting to see many more uh, flavors of AutoML coming about. And I would say for me, I think AutoML is really exciting because it definitely uh, helps with the hyperparameter optimization and the process of, of modeling. Uh, I've found uh, in particular with H2O's AutoML that it does very well on hyperparameter optimization. Uh, some, and I've compared that to like using scikit-learn's random randomized grid search where uh, even I'm finding lift with H2O on that. So um, I think it's it's definitely a very good uh, library that's that's helped my work. Uh, do I think AutoML is going to replace the old data scientists? Absolutely not. I think actually actually makes data scientists more valuable because it allows data scientists to uh, complete their projects faster, which will
1: mm.
2: bring essentially even more business value to their business. And uh, in, in, in doing will make the business
0: perceive their work to be of even greater value. Yeah, for sure. Essentially, like, it, it helps you take care of some of the uh, nitty-gritty detail of, of the model optimization process, and then you can focus more on the the, the, the value that the model give you, right? And uh, essentially take, taking care of some of that leg work uh, and uh, allow the the data scientists to focus more on some of the more important business impact. So it sounds like maybe that might be one of the trends coming up in the next few years for this field, so you you recently came back from PyData Albi, and you mentioned that you were um will be invited to speak at Strata DataCon by O'Reilly next year. Um, and in particular, you the talks that you you given was about uh, evaluating traditional and novel feature selection approaches. And we will already talked a bit about uh you know that whole thing about feature selection uh throughout our conversation. But um, I guess would you mind just giving uh, a brief glimpse about Uh, your talk at PyData, uh, you just finished, and then as well as the one Red O'Reilly next year?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So this was a a topic that for me was very interesting because uh, there's, I think, many different uh, methods of feature selection that data scientists sometimes employ. Uh, And for me personally, I wanted to have... uh, essentially, a scientific study of these different types of approaches to see what really was working best. Uh, so I used the lending club data set. Uh, and it was a two year data set that I uh, collected from 2012 to 2013, which lending clubs data set is publicly available on their website, lending club.com. Uh, and essentially, my target variable uh, was binary of moment status being either fully paid or charged off. So I wanted to try to predict is somebody who is applying for a loan from Lending Club, will they fully pay on that loan or will the loan be charged off and will they default on the loan? So in that two year data set, there were 188,181 loans. Uh, there was some class imbalance because 158,510 were fully paid, 29,671 were charged off, uh, resulting in the minority class being 15.7% of the data set. And so there were 104 initial features before feature engineering. Uh, with that class imbalance, I actually uh, did uh, look at not doing any type of oversampling or undersampling, and then also uh, oversampling, undersampling. And I actually found the uh, smoke uh, plus ENN, uh, which is the synthetic minority oversampling technique plus edited nearest neighbors. I did add lift to the model. Uh, that is uh, a package that's uh, publicly available from uh, the scikit-learn IMB-learn uh, library. And, Essentially, I went through a whole process flow for how I did feature engineering and feature selections. So I started with the categorical features, duplicated them, and label encoded those duplicated duplicated features. Then I target encoded the original categorical features. Then for all the features, then I duplicated them again. And on those duplicates, I calculated the weight of evidence transformations on those features. And then I dropped any features with constant values. One of my experiments involved splitting the validation set into a training test subset from the original validation set. I used the FeetX package to eliminate noisy features at a threshold below 0.75 between the training validation set. I fit the model to get the gain, uh, feature importance values for all the features and identified the relevant interactions for XGDFER. Uh, and feature engineered those relevant interactions in one of my experiments stepwise backwards feature selection. I reviewed MLflow to find the optimal set of features. Uh, then I actually used those interactive features as a feature, not, a, not necessarily as a feature engineering technique, but actually as a feature selection technique, where I then parsed out those interactive features into standalone features. So if I had a three-way interaction, say feature A, feature B, and feature D in one feature, then I actually then created that into uh, separate features of only feature A, feature B, and feature D as standalone. backwards feature selection using the original training validation test sets with both SHAP and Gain. So in essence, uh, this uh, experiment had, had five components. Uh, so experiment number one was using backwards stepwise feature selection with SHAP.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: experiment two was backward stepwise with SHAP and VX. Experiment number three was backward stepwise with Gain. Uh, experiment four is an approach that I think some data scientists use, which is just a single uh, step elimination of features using gain. So essentially, just saying, I've got a model, say 300 features, and maybe I'll just take the top 20 features. And in one cut, just say, okay, I'm going to look at the feature importance, cut it at the top 20, and then go from there. Uh, and then experiment number five was doing backward stepwise feature selection with SHAP and splitting the validation set. And, uh, what I actually found was that the best model run was that experiment number five, where I did backward stepwise feature selection with SHAP, splitting the validation set. Uh, that lift, resulted in a uh, 3.1% lift in AUC, a 3.7% lift in average precision score, and a 10.5% improvement, being reduction in log loss, versus my second best uh, feature experiment run, which was backward stepwise with SHAP. So, mm-hmm. um that was uh, really exciting for me to be able to see uh, in this open data set, this approach, which I had uh, thought would work well, uh, did validate and did work as I expected and, uh, and worked better than the other approaches. And, and the whole, this whole concept that I've kind of created of splitting the validation set is one that made sense to me because the way I was taught was that the training set should be used for training the model The validation set should be used for hyperparameter optimization and feature selection. And the test set should be a holdout set that should only be used for evaluating the final model. And so where my thought on this kind of came to be was that, okay, if I'm doing a a stepwise backwards feature selection, uh, and if the validation set is to be used for feature selection, then what is being used to train those models on each editor run of feature selection. Uh, it's the training set. And then I'm kind of, there could be some data leakage there because then later on I'm going to use that same training set again in further uh, modeling steps. So if I could essentially keep that training set isolated from the validation set and split the validation set in essentially the subset of training and tests, mm-hmm. uh, I think that would actually... Uh had the model generalized the new data better, and that's exactly what I found and uh, those metrics that I cited were on an out of sample test set. so it wasn't even on the test set, but it was on the final month, December 2013 which was out of sample for that period
0: I see so just kind of sum it up on that your best method is like the data you got the train the validation and the test, and then within the validation you sp- speed up like even further into like validation train and validation, and test right. For for correct for official yes. Um I'm just curious like what um you know what, what is the, the ratio, what is the speed ratio for like kind of the whole the, the, the whole thing?
1: Um yeah,
2: so mm-hmm. um, I believe I used a it was, I think ninety percent, ten percent split on essentially training set and then ten percent was the validation set and then another ten percent of the of the training was the test set. So I think it would end up being like 81% training mm-hmm. and then uh, 10% test and then 9% validation set was essentially, I think, the, the breakdown of the, the data set. And in terms of uh, the data size, again, there was uh, the total data size was uh, 188,000 loans.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm actually quite familiar with the Learning Club data set because, um, yeah, I was doing some stuff with it over my summer internship. So I I, I I learned a little bit about it. Um, you know, quite quite popular, especially in, in credit lending. Um and, it's, it, and you mentioned our sample, so it's it's more like you know, you got the the data over time and you train it on the model like
2: correct you know, and, and I should say that hundred and eighty-eight thousand loans, that is actually on the entire data set. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the uh, out of sample data set, um there were fifteen thousand twenty Loans in the out-of-sample period, which was December 2013. So the actual uh, value counts was I had 140,259 loans in the training set, 15,585 loans in the validation set, 17,317 loans in the test set, and then 15,020 loans in the out-of-sample set.
0: I see from this uh, experiment that you did and, and presented. You know what? What could be like the implication for for people uh, who want to adopt? You know some of the some of, some of this feature selection approach in in their day to day machine learning workflow, what could be you know the takeaway that you would like to give them?
2: Well, I would say the the two main takeaways are I think there's merit in splitting the validation set if you're doing a stepwise feature selection, and then uh, the other aspect is I think there's benefit in using um, Scott Lundberg's SHAP uh, library, which is mm-hmm. using SHAPley values uh, for backwards feature selection. Uh, and there is what inspired my thought of looking at SHAP was in uh, Scott Lindberg wrote a blog post on Medium, uh, talking about the uh, different feature, the, the landscape of feature attribution techniques, and how many of them are either inconsistent or inaccurate. Uh, and that SHAP is essentially the only feature attribution technique that is both consistent and accurate. Uh, So, by essentially calculating the mean absolute shock value, uh, you can then use that as a a backwards feature selection uh, approach, where you're essentially eliminating uh, the minimum uh, mean absolute shock value uh, feature uh, iteratively at each model build. Uh, And you just build that in a loop, and I think that may provide great benefit to, to data scientists out there who are trying to do feature selection well
0: really neat. i I put, uh, Scott Berg work on work on the shows doing you can can learn more about some his stuff with with the sharp package and and I guess just just be aware more about sharply values in general yeah i I know that you know they that uh, his work is also pretty important into the whole evolution of uh, machine learning interpretability as well so that's definitely very that's nice absolutely
2: I use, I use sharp uh, values for interpretability uh, frequently as well so I think that's become uh, kind of industry standard i say pi Day to los angeles i've heard multiple talks of people talking about SHAP.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and how they're uh, either integrating SHAP into their own libraries uh, or using it in their workflow so it's i think that's uh, been a fantastic library because it really has broken the notion that uh, machine learning models are black boxes and are uninterpretable which i think had been a, a Perhaps a rightful, rightful objection in the past, but no longer holds true.
0: I see. Moving a bit out of the technical uh, conversation. So, so what good, you know, your advice for people who want to, I guess, be uh, be invited to to speak at some of these conferences to to build their uh, personal brand, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think
2: um, first is find out like what areas of the field of data science you really like, in, uh, and get you um, inspired and passionate about when you do your work. So is it feature engineering? Is it modern interpretability? Is it feature selection? And if you are one of those brilliant people who've developed a, a novel package, that could be something that you could talk about in uh, a talk at a conference.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but then you can also, you don't necessarily need to be a developer of some innovative package. Uh, But maybe you develop some sort of innovative approach on how you use that package in your workflow. And that could be a a, a talk as well. So um, I think it's the the main thing is just uh, use your talents and knowledge that you've developed along with uh, areas that you're passionate about. And I think that can be a great uh, marriage for a talk.
0: Lastly, how would you describe the tech and data community in the greater Miami area?
2: So I would say the tech community in Miami is definitely growing. At JM Family Enterprises, we have a strong commitment to tech. We are prioritizing cutting edge technologies such as AI and ML. For me, I, uh, when I moved to Southeast Toyota Finance, we had recently created a new machine learning team. Uh, and I think that's a great example of our prioritization. Um, but I think there's a lot of uh, interest in AI and ML in local enterprises in Miami. I mentioned I spoke at the Pi Data Miami conference and attended the Data Science Long Conference in Miami. Uh, both these conferences were excellent opportunities to network with data scientists at other companies uh, in the area, such as uh, Magically, Royal Caribbean, Visa, Microsoft, Nextera Energy, and KPMG.
0: Um, so, uh, Ben, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on our, uh, our closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid-fire questions. Okay. Yeah, okay. Let's so. Go for it. Mm, yeah, awesome. So the first question is that, um, what are some of the companies that are doing exceptional data science work that you really admire?
2: So I definitely admire the work that Amazon has done in building up their, their SageMaker pro- product. I mentioned their uh, AutoML technology. I think that's terrific. Uh, Google has introduced AutoML for Google Cloud. And I also talked about h2o.ai and their auto-ML capability, which I use in my workflow. But I'm also a huge proponent of open source. I mentioned Streamlit earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I also mentioned, MLflow from Databricks uh, and the SHAP package from Scott Lindberg. So I think all those different types of uh, open source packages are very exciting as well. Uh, and to me, in my experience, uh, open source means not only uh, no license fees, but it all usually means also uh, just a better way to work uh, because it's embraced by the community. And there's many developers that are uh, working to uh, make that package working better.
0: Yeah, that, that that definitely resonates very well with me. The data science community is very much uh, based a lot on, on open source package, you know, scikit learn and, and TensorFlow, all that stuff are, are very. Um, you know, popular, and the reason it is so good is because a lot of people contribute the feedback and and provide some some of their own expertise. So I'm I'm glad that you know you, you kind of validate that, that that notion. The second question is that: What is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset?
1: Sure. So
2: I, I think Python for Data Analysis, uh, the second edition by Wes McKinney, is is would be my choice. Uh, I choose that book because it gives insight on how to use Python for data analysis. Uh, Python's evolved to become the dominant language for data scientists. Uh, as an example, I've attended two H2O.AI conferences. My first was in Mountain View in December 2017. My second was in San Francisco in February 2019. At both conferences, uh, Aaron Liddell asked the ballroom of about 1,000 attendees how many primarily code in R and how many primarily code in Python. Yeah. In
1: 2017,
2: the room was split 50 50 of R and Python developers. And by March of 2019, I'd estimate 80% of the room raised their hand for Python, 20% raised raise their hand for R. I think R is a great language, and I think there's many very talented data scientists that use R. Mm-hmm. But I also am sensing a lot of momentum in the business world around Python. Mm-hmm. And I think as a data scientist, I would highly encourage um, someone to, to get very uh, talented working in Python. Uh, mm-hmm. And so with that said, if there's one book around Python, around data analysis that I'd recommend, it would be this book. Uh, West McKinney was the creator of pandas, which is the most important library in Python for data analysis, and so wrangling of tabular data. It's a library I use every day, day. In this book, it provides examples of how to analyze data, wrangle data, and plot data, uh, which are so essential for exploratory data analysis. Uh, provide understanding of where data is missing, distribution data, correlation data, relationships of single features, what features in the target variable. And additionally, Python for data analysis can provide techniques to build up feature engineering using tools to aggregate and shift data to increase the predictive power of your data. Uh, so I think all these essential skills are discussed well in this book. Uh, and uh, although it's just one book, uh, it can serve as a starting point for any aspiring data scientist to Really, in their talents and modeling and developing uh, a
0: sense of how to do data analytics well. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. I'll uh, be sure to put that in the show notes. Um, yeah, just 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 one quick note. I, I think I think Erin Leto, she's like also one of the organizers for our ladies. I think yes, she and, is. Yeah, and that's that's cool that to hear that she <laughs> also kind of validate you know the you know dominance of, of Python within the community and and I, I suppose you know that one of the reason is because it's a General-purpose programming language right? you, you can go directly, uh, go from your code and, and put that into production and work very well with the back end and all that stuff. Whereas R is more um, academically uh, focused and for the people who like from from the start background. So um, so I think that's that's one of the reason reason why industry probably adopted Python in in a much more um, f- faster rate compared to to you know other contenders. I, um, I agree. And then, uh, you know, the last question, um, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: I would communicate how important it is to actually get your hands dirty in projects and do data science work. It's easy to take classes and read books, and all of which I will say is absolutely essential learning. Um, but you also have to do the work. There are many publicly available data sets that it can serve as a starting point, such as Kaggle or the UCI Machine Learning Repository and from Lending Club. Uh, I would communicate the importance of building a portfolio of work documenting your entire process,
1: mm-hmm.
2: starting from the problem interest to EDA to data splitting, feature engineering, feature selection, hyperparameter optimization, model evaluation criteria, model interpretability, experiment tracking, and essentially, taking your model to inference. Um, someone who can demonstrate through a project portfolio that they can do this entire end-to-end process well would get my attention.
0: Fantastic. So, so Ben, I uh, really appreciate you, you know, spending your time talking with me today. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people found, you know, our conversation to be valuable, you know, because, you know, of your, your experience doing uh, industry data science and, you know, opinion regarding uh, feature selection and feature engineering as well as a variety of, um, important uh, resources for you know people who want to learn more about some, some of the best practices to do uh, end-to-end uh, modeling, um, and, and I'll be sure to put all of those resources into the show notes. People can get a chance to dig in more, uh, trying out some of those libraries, products, platform, as well as um, you know hopefully doing something meaningful from from them. Uh, so Ben, yeah, thanks a lot, and I, I hope you had a great day.
2: Thank you so much for your time today,
0: James. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jamescaley.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.